The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask series. This week's subject is one of the most significant and long-lasting conflicts of the medieval era, the Hundred Years' War. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, put your questions on the subject to Anne Curry, Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of Southampton. So um, I'm joined today by Anne Curry, Emeritus Professor of Medieval History at the University of Southampton, to discuss everything you ever wanted to know about the Hundred Years' War. Now, Anne is one of the country's leading experts on this long Anglo-French conflict, uh, most particularly the Battle of Agincourt, the exploits of Joan of Arc, and the evolution of the English armies that fought in France. Uh, she's written several books on the subject, not to mention numerous features for our magazine. Um, so, Anne, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Um, now, as always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones uh, you, our listeners, submitted on our various social media platforms. Um, so, so, Anne, we'll start with a question which was submitted by Vivian Wildebor on Facebook. And that question is, did the Hundred Years' War actually last for a hundred years? Well, I think that's a good question. Uh, we've got to remember the Hundred Years' War never existed. That might seem a daft comment to make right at the beginning, but it's something that's been defined into existence in the early 19th century. It seems to have been a term invented in France, La Guerre de Cent Ans, but of course it's a great shorthand, isn't it? Historians love to categorise things, and I think readers and uh, people who are interested in history like that as well. We like to have pegs on which to hang uh, our knowledge. Knowledge. So it was invented, but it really, I think, is great in that it shows the insolubility of that war between England and France. Its technical dates, 1337, 
through to 1453. So if you're good at maths, that's 116 years. Well, that's not a terribly good expression to have. However, there was no peace treaty in 1453. In fact, the nearest real peace treaty where the King of England stopped calling himself King of France, because that's really what it's all about, was 1801. So I don't know how long that is. But in fact, in the uh, uh, 20th century, somebody invented the idea of a second Hundred Years' War for all those wars between England and France in the 18th century, the Marlborough Wars, the War of, uh, uh, of Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, all that kind of thing. Uh, because, again, it was emphasising the fact that we really were old enemies and we were still at it. But when the Entente Cordiale came in 1904, some people were quite surprised, and maybe even today, some people think that we're still enemies of the French rather than their allies. So it could quite as easily have been called the 600 Years' War by the sound of it. <laughs> it could indeed. <laughs> but it's kept historians going for about that long, so perhaps not so bad. That's true. OK, Anne, so let's, let's go back to the beginning of the conflict with a popular internet search query. I mean, what were the main causes of the Hundred Years' War? I think we have to remember that France and England, or their kings, more properly speaking, had been at war before 1337, which is the official start date of the Hundred Years' War. Why was that? Well, basically because in 1066, a peer of France, a Duke of Normandy, became King of England. From that time onwards, the kings of England had interests in France, not just Normandy, but also through the marriage of Henry II to Eleanor of Aquitaine, interests also in southern France, the area we call Aquitaine, Gascony, uh, also the area north of that, Poitou. And, of course, Henry's father had been the Count of Anjou and Maine, so they had interests there. In fact, in the reign of Henry II, the English king actually controlled more of France than the French king did. King John had lost quite a lot of that. He'd lost all the northern bits. He'd lost Normandy, he'd lost Maine, he'd lost Anjou. Henry III, his son, was to lose Poitou. But they still had that bit in the south, Aquitaine, based on the great capital of Bordeaux. They were still dukes of Aquitaine. And, of course, the idea of a king holding lands of another king, you'll notice I said he was Duke of Aquitaine, he wasn't King of Aquitaine, that meant he was a vassal of the King of France. And so there were going to be loads and loads of run-ins. There'd been run-ins between the Dukes of Normandy and the Kings of France. So we've just got a, a kind of difficult situation waiting to erupt because by the time we got to uh, about 1300, kingship was very powerful indeed. And the idea that one king should be disturbed in, in his rights, if you like, by another king, uh, by the fact that he was his vassal, just wasn't going to work. A king wasn't going to kneel down and pay homage to another king. So into that really already delicate situation comes another problem, and that is a succession crisis. In 1328, the King of France, Charles IV, died without a male heir, and therefore they had a, a difficulty in knowing who the heir should be. The nearest heir, the nephew, was Edward III of England, but his inheritance was through his mother, the sister 
of a previous number of French kings. And the French didn't like that idea of inheritance through a woman. And not just that, they didn't like the idea of the King of England becoming King of France. So I think it's inevitable, given that the English and the French were were already at war, in fact, 1324 to 27, that they should go further out in the uh, royal family, look at the male line only, and choose a descendant of a king a few dynasty, few few decades back, uh, Philip VI of the line of the Valois kings. And so Philip VI became king of France, not Edward III. But of course, the point is here that there'd been a claim, a claim of blood. Edward III did have a claim, and indeed even some lawyers at the time thought that claim through his mother was fine. And so we've got really something that's that's going to erupt into an already delicate situation. And so how did it all begin? It, it, I guess it just it began with an English invasion led by Edward III. Is that, is that correct? Uh, no, actually, when we look at the war, it begins with a, a French invasion, a French declaration of war. But we need to go back really to the reign of Edward III. Edward III was himself a usurper. He'd only come to the crown in 1327, where his mother had helped him depose his father, Edward II, and Edward II had been murdered. And so we have a delicate situation in England as well. Now, for Philip VI, who became King of France at the choice of the French nobles, if you like, it was absolutely essential for him to neutralise any claim that Edward III might have. And so he spent all his time trying to get Edward to come to France to pay homage to him. So we almost have a Cold War in the 1330s. At the same time, The English kings, Edward III amongst them, are trying to get over lordship of Scotland, a very similar kind of thing to what the French king's wanting in in France. And Philip thinks, aha, if I stir up things in Scotland for Edward III, then he's bound to give in to me in terms of paying homage as Duke of Aquitaine. So that adds another element into it. An alliance between France and Scotland was revived. It had started in 1296, but it's revived again in the mid-1330s. So we have things really ripe for disaster, and there are various other small causes, till eventually in 1337, Philip VI claims that Edward III is a contumacious vassal and therefore he confiscates his property from him, not just Aquitaine, but by this time the English also have the county of Pontieu. That's the area around the Somme as well. And so Philip takes all those lands away from Edward. So really it's the French who declare war in 1337 and they are ready to go. In fact, in 1338, they start attacking the English coast. It takes Edward a bit of a time to get going, really, in this war. Now, Anne, can you uh, achieve the impossible and condense a hundred or so years into a few minutes and explain the trajectory of this conflict? Yeah, I'll try to do that. I think we've got to maybe break it up into three parts. Let's suggest 1337 to 1360 the first phase, 1369 to 1399, and then the 15th century phase. In the first phase, 
as I say, Edward III gets off to a slow start and he's not that confident in waging war. So his first task is to get allies in Europe and he gets them in Brabant, all those low country princes who, and, and the emperor as well who always hate the French. Uh, that sort of leads to the first campaign around Combray because that's within the empire. But then he thinks of a better plan and that is to get the alliance of the Flemish because the Flemish are themselves vassals of the kings of France, who stirs up trouble there. And it is there on the 25th of January 1340 that he is declared king of France. It's in Ghent, and there's a very nice monument there. there. So that's another important date, 1340, after which the English kings call themselves king of France. He meddles in all sorts of areas, such as Brittany, but in 1346, he decides on a full frontal campaign, and that's the one where he invades Normandy, lands near Cherbourg, marches across Normandy, gets nearly to Paris, moves then into Pontieu, his own county, and we've got the famous Battle of Cressy. And I think what we can say then in this period, we're now in the 1340s, but I can take you swiftly into the 1350s, we win another battle in 1350. 56 in Poitiers, even better than that, uh, we capture the French king by then John II. And so that first phase of the war after the slow start is really England's war with a great naval victory in 1340. So 1337-1360, England's success, and therefore a treaty in 1360 that gives Edward what he wants, not the crown of France, but Aquitaine and his other lands, Calais now, because he's captured that, in full sovereignty. And he calls himself after that Lord of Aquitaine, not Duke anymore, but Lord. And he makes his son, the Black Prince, Prince of Aquitaine. So the uh, what what's that make it? The, uh, the 23 years war is over and the English have won it. Not so fast. Although John II abided by that treaty, the Treaty of Bretigny in 1360, his son Charles V, who became king in 1364, didn't. And so in 1369, on a legal technicality, he reopens the war. He invades these lands held by the English king. And that period from 1369 to 99 is quite a complicated period but it's the period where the English lose virtually everything that they'd gained in the first phase. Uh, there are lots of campaigns in France, these great big uh, chevauchées across France from Calais to Bordeaux, but they don't get anywhere, largely because the French won't be brought to battle. They've learnt the lesson of the first phase. So we get to the 1390s and we get a long truce because the war's not going anywhere for either side, and they decide, let's have a long truce. Let's marry the King of England, Richard II, to a princess, the daughter of Charles VI, King of France. And that'll be great. The fact she's only six will actually be helpful because uh, they, they won't be able to have kids for a while yet. But it's sorted it out. And we're really we're, we're putting the ball into the long grass, so to speak. You know, we're fudging the issue. But then, of course, a further complication, 1399, a new dynasty in England, the Lancastrians, depose Richard II. And I think we've got to remember these domestic politics are just as important. This coincides then in England with something interesting in France. Charles VI, the daddy of the little princess, goes mad. And so we have 
a civil war in France and the English, the Lancastrians, are able to exploit that situation. And eventually, of course, famously in 1415, Henry V invades France with a huge army, recruiting them for a year, and the rest, as they say, is history. He wins a battle at Agincourt. Two years later, he goes on and conquers Normandy. He exploits that civil war where the Duke of Burgundy is killed by the Armagnacs. And in, 30, in 1420, at the Treaty of Troyes, Henry V is accepted as heir to the throne of France. So what have we got now? The 90-odd year war is over. And the English have won So where did it all go and wrong actually, for the English then? Well, that's a good point. I think we could say it's because Henry V goes and dies within two years. He's only heir to France and regent of France from 1420 to his death on the 31st of August, 1422. Yeah, And after that, he leaves a nine-month-old baby who is technically, once his granddad, Charles VI, has died as well, she does a few months after Henry V, as King of England and of France. Now, everybody loves a baby, so it could actually have worked out all right. But uh, there is a claimant in France. He's called the Dauphin. He's the son of Charles VII. He's not going to uh, uh, go down without fighting. There were plans to assassinate him, by the way, but they didn't come off. And then Joan of Arc pops up, helps him regain control and helps him particularly to be crowned King of France in 1429. And after that, the English really are on retreat. They keep going a bit longer. They're not driven out of Normandy till 1450 and out of Gascony till 1453. But though that 15th century period is very interesting from 1429 to 1453, in a way, things are, are lost for the English once Charles VII has been crowned King of France. It overturns that treaty of 1420. So, Anne, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is one um, a popular uh, query on the internet. Who won the Hundred Years' War? Was it definitively <laughs> France? I think so. And it, it brings back memories for me because my little boy, when he was about four, was in a nursery and we, you know, we got off the bus and we walked the uh, 200 yards to the nursery front door and he turned to me and said, Mummy, who won the Hundred Years' War? And I thought, I don't think in 200 yards I can explain. Yes, uh, the France the French won. And of course, they went on to great things. You know, we're starting to get by the end of the 15th century, the rise of Renaissance France, really. They're starting to invade Italy. Uh, and you get those great uh, uh, campaigns and, and also the powerful nature of the French monarchy. Whereas in England, what are we doing? Well, we're killing our kings. We've got a Wars of the Roses. So uh, I think you can say the French win and they make the most of it. But, uh, and this is a topic that was was realised in the late 15th century as well. The English had won the battles, but they couldn't win the war. You know, I think there's a difference between short-term objectives and often military superiority and also the exploitation of divisions within France, which is obviously important. But at the end of the day, once you're driven out of your territory, except for Calais, the English hold Calais till uh, 1558, uh, and they have MPs from Calais. They make Calais almost part of England there. But after all the land in Normandy and Aquitaine is lost, really, Calais doesn't mean very much. So this is a question from uh, William Rochester on Facebook. 
Was establishing an English king on the throne of France ever a realistic long-term possibility? Was this a war that England could ever have won? Well, we could say that in 1360 they had won, but at the cost of, of giving up or putting to one side the title king of France. So maybe what that shows is a compromise was not a bad idea. I you say, okay, I won't be king of France, but I'll have a lot of France, yeah, and I'll call it the Lordship of Aquitaine. Uh, so that's a territorial settlement rather than a dynastic settlement. And I think that could have worked, really. In fact, Edward III thought it was going to work, and he was taken by surprise in 1369 when Charles V threw that treaty over and invaded the lands. So I think that kind of solution could have worked. And then we've got Henry V. Henry V became heir to the French crown by recognition by the French. The Treaty of Troyes was a legal treaty made with Charles VI, and Charles went on to disinherit his son, the Dauphin, and Henry was much respected. Henry as regent was a great success. We've got reforms of the currency. We've got a reputation for law and order already established in England and in Normandy that he then takes to the whole of France, or at least the France that accepts the treaty. Uh, so you could have said, had he lived longer, he was only his 30s when he died, then yes, it would have been feasible. But we've got to remember then what would have happened in England. Would the English have liked the idea of their king always being in France? Because he probably would have had to be there quite a lot of the time. And we know even in the Parliament of uh, 1420, December 1420, there were certain noises about it's going to mess up legislation here because the king's not here to approve it. Also, hang on a minute, we don't want England to be subordinate to France, and so we're going to have reissued a statute of 1340 that says that'll never happen. Okay, he's king of France, but we're equal partners, yeah? Uh, so, and also, they weren't very happy about Henry being away. So I think it could have caused problems in England. So it might have solved one thing, if Henry had lived longer, but it could have created other problems uh, in the long term in England. Okay, this is another Facebook question from uh, Alex Plotkin, and he's asking, did English people move to and colonise parts of France captured by English troops during the conflict? And how did English rule of conquered parts of France work? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting thing. And of course, there has been, particularly as we've got more interested in colonialism, empire, those sorts of things, there's been a bit of a tendency to project these ideas back to the Middle Ages. You know, it's been part of the uh, the language of discussion of the uh, English kings in Ireland, for instance, even in Wales. And so you might interpret all of this interest in the continent as a sort of early imperialism. Bit unfair in the sense that the King of England was Duke of Normandy from the start, yeah, and then also Duke of Aquitaine. You know, you could say it's the other way around, you know, that we've been colonised by the Normans, really, or by the Vikings, because that's where they came from. So let's just think about this. Initially, there wasn't really much interest. You know, it was France for the French and England for the English. There'd been a bit of settlement in Aquitaine, 
Uh, in fact, uh, some historians have called it a Wild West. You know, it's where, you know, you, young men went to make their fortunes. Uh, there was the wine trade. There was also a lot of military action, a lot of jobs down there as the sort of deputy constable of whatever. So it was a, like Ireland. It was a place where you could start your career in the civil and military service. But the big change, really, to all of this was Henry V. Henry V is the great colonizer, the great imperialist, because he'd already got the idea in 1415 of giving lands to his supporters, giving lands in France. In fact, one of the arguments put forward at the Parliament of 1414 when he announces the plans to invade was uh, we'll be able to get a lot of money and a lot of benefits will come for people. We'll be able to lower taxation in England because they'll all have these lands in France. And he gives the first grant to the very famous knight, Sir John Fastolf. In January 1416, he gives him a manor near to Harfleur. Fastolf is serving in Harfleur at the time and he's been quite a hero there in defending Harfleur. So there's one grant there. But the big number of grants come in the second campaign from uh, August 1417. And that is quite remarkable. Between then and uh, the, the, the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, we have thousands of land grants to English settlers. And some of these are biggies, you know, so the Earl of Salisbury's made Count of Perche. He gets a whole earldom in France. But there's also an archer who gets a house in Harfleur. So, you know, it's tailored for every level of society. And it's not just military. Uh, I've done quite a bit of work on the financial administration of Normandy. That might sound a rather dry topic. But all these civil servants were given houses in Caen, near the office where they were working. Yeah, So we can see the build-up of a presence, because obviously Henry knew that you can't just rule something through force, through military presence. You've got to have an admin to back it up. You've got to collect local revenues. And you've got to try to run it on a very efficient and fair system. Henry tried in Normandy to be fair. Okay, uh, it's fairness through uh, coercion because he persuades, persuades the Normans to accept his rule. Uh, and uh, we see them seeking seeking to pay homage to him and all of that kind of thing. And he really sort of proclaims, I'll be nice to anybody who accepts me uh, and I'll be horrible to anybody else. And if you've run away, if you fled from Normandy, I'm going to give your lands to one of my soldiers or administrators. So that is the great colonial period. And the Duke of Bedford, his brother, who's regent for the young Henry VI, continues that policy. So we continue getting land grants, but not uh, to the same intensity as that period between 1417 and 1420. It's really quite remarkable. Okay, and here is a, a question from uh, Ryan St. John, uh, again submitted uh, on Facebook. He's asking, how much did the war cost and, and who paid the most, uh, both financially and societally? Yeah, how much did it cost? Well, wars cost money. And of course, I think everybody knows that the English Parliament really was born out of the need for war finance, that it started in the reign of Edward I, who invaded Scotland, uh, invaded Wales, actually had quite a lot of wars in Gascony as well. And he couldn't just pay for them out of the royal lands. And so he started summoning 
merchants and then uh, the parliament as we know it now in order to get votes of taxation on on uh, uh, movable goods. In fact, you know, England is is really at the, the forefront of taxation in Europe. I don't know whether that's a claim to fame that uh, uh, our kings were able to get more taxes out of the people. Perhaps it shows our prosperity as well, of course, at an early date. So that continues being the case. Now, there's a downside to that, and that is that the kings have to listen to parliament just a little bit, yeah? And uh, uh, a strong king like Henry V probably didn't need to listen all that much, but a weaker king like uh, Henry VI did have to. But throughout the period, we get taxation grants that, that fund the war. And success in France made the people keener to, to pay. So Henry V has amazing level of taxation during his reign. When we're not successful, then uh, in the reign of Henry VI, the English taxpayer is less keen to pay up. I mean, this is a, a, an eternal thing, isn't it, in warfare, rather like the Thatcher-Falklands factor, you know, war can help a government uh, considerably. But taxation in England was very, very high indeed. And also, it's important to remember we experimented and that didn't go down too well. Everybody knows the Peasants' Revolt. That's really a taxation revolt because it all hinged on a poll tax. And as again, as Margaret Thatcher found out, poll taxes, where you tax people rather than property, never, never very popular at all. And we have this major rebellion. Uh, another thing that's not often mentioned there is another reason was because the third poll tax in 1380 uh, was three times the level of the first poll tax in 1377. 1377, four old pennies. In 1380, 12 pennies. So I think people were pretty miffed. Yeah, and also the war was going badly. So this was a classic case of what the hell are we paying for? The French are raiding our coast. We've lost all that land. Yeah. Now, what about the French? Well, the French actually didn't have as good a tax system as we had because it didn't really have a parliament in the same way as we did. The king had arbitrary powers of taxation, but that meant it was irregular. It was actually easy to get the money once he declared an emergency, but declaring an emergency wasn't that easy to do. And that's why Henry V is so successful. He's able to plan ahead, get tax in advance, prepare his army and invade. And the French can't really do anything till he's there, yeah, or till he's nearly there. So, yes, the French have a lot more money, but the English actually have a better infrastructure, better process. And this is been emphasised by modern economic historians, the English could borrow money. In the Middle Ages, it's just like nowadays, the government borrows money on the back of getting that tax income in later on. The French crown didn't have that because it was wealthier. It didn't have recourse to that credit finance. So England, again, maybe uh, was sort of more advanced in financial uh, arrangements uh, and therefore could could rely on, uh, on, on credit coming in in the future. And also uh, Edward III famously gambled on the, uh, uh, the wool wool production in England, you know, it's just like a futures market, all that kind of thing. So some really interesting things about the history of taxation. But at the end of the day, that only works if you're doing well, militarily speaking. Sure. Right, the next question is from uh, Claire Coyne, and she's asking, how important 
was Joan of Arc. How much difference did she actually make to the course of the war? Yeah, Joan of Arc. Well, I mean, if you go to Rouen, there's a very uh, nice new exhibition there on Joan called Historial de Jeanne d'Arc. It's in the old Archbishop's Palace in uh, in Rouen. And you can press a button there and you can ask a hologram of myself four questions in English and French. It's it's. It's the office of the historians. There are four historians there. I'm the token British historian. I mean, she is an amazing person, and I've laboured long and hard, and I really can't explain her. But then, you know, she's she's a religious figure uh, as well as a, um, a a military figure. But as I see it, um, you need a secret ingredient, really. There's there's uh, one little hinge, isn't it, that causes the difference in all of these sorts of things, and she is it. Before she turns up, I think the English were still doing quite well. It would have been very difficult for Charles the Dauphin to have been crowned king because the English controlled Troyes and Reims, all the places, Reims in particular, the crowning place of the French kings. I think she turns up, it takes her a while to persuade the French, uh, the Dauphin, to accept her. Uh, but the English at that moment are not doing as well. They've, they're trying to get Orleans and they can't. The siege has drifted on. So a combination of that just failing a little bit and then a revival of Charles the Dauphin's confidence in himself. Also, he is apparently a very superstitious man. This virgin had turned up and said, I'm going to save France. And, you know, he said, let's trust her. His advisor said, hang on a minute. Are you sure, sire? Yeah, but uh, there she was sent out as the secret weapon, the secret weapon, the girl. Uh, everybody knew it was a girl. Uh, the English archers couldn't really uh, loose their bows uh, against her. And she gives a confidence to the French that makes them think they're God's chosen people, makes them fight for their cause, gets Charles crowned. And once that has happened, really it's very difficult for the English to doubt the legitimacy of the Valois claim to the throne. They can recover territory but there's a fundamental flaw. Their king is only eight years old, nine years old. They bring him to France, they get him crowned, but they can't get Reims back. So they have to make do with a second a class coronation in uh, Notre Dame in Paris. And there's a, a very interesting chronicler called the Bourgeois of Paris who complains that the food, the food served to people on the day of the coronation in Paris was just pretty awful. You know, the English didn't know how to cook and that kind of thing. I.e., you know, he's sort of saying this is the, the second class rulers, really. We want the real uh, French king back. Great. Now, then, um, the next question is quite an interesting one, I thought. How much involvement did other European powers have in have in the conflict? Did were they throwing their weight behind particular sides? That's a question we've had from Instagram. Yeah, I mean, the I have in my very first book on the Hundred Years' War, uh, called the Hundred Years' War, published uh, as long ago as 1993, I had a chapter called The Wider Context, and I suggested this was the first pan-European war, and I think that's a valid point to make. Right from the start in the 1330s, France and England looked for allies. So, for instance, the French would get uh, Castile, 
one of the kingdoms of Spain and the English would get an alliance with Aragon, the other main kingdom. In the Low Countries, you get there uh, alliances of one sort or another. At one point, the Count of Flanders favours the French. On another occasion, he favours the English. So it is really a war of allies. Uh, and the Scots are the allies of the French really throughout the whole period. So I think in the 14th century, particularly the first phase and the second phase as well, this pan-European quality is absolutely essential. In fact, in that period of peace, 1360 to 69, this Hundred Years' War is fought out in Spain, where the, uh, the French support one claimant to the Castilian throne and the English support the other claimant to the Castilian throne and the Black Prince invades, wins a battle, but then it costs too much. At the end of the day, the French claimant is the one who wins the, uh, the throne. So it is a very, very important uh, element. It does explain why we remained bitter enemies with the Scots. The French had a cunning plan from time to time, which was they would invade southern England and they'd get the Scots to invade northern England at the same time, and a very dangerous situation for uh, the English. And so in return, we would invade Flanders, modern-day Belgium, and we even had a recovery of our troops from the beach at Dunkirk, uh, much as, as in 1383, much as they, they had in, in 1940. So, you know, the European dimension's absolutely fascinating. Probably less so in the 15th century, where I think it's more important to consider divisions in France. Henry V allied with the Burgundians. They were part of the you know, collateral line of the royal family against a faction of nobles called the Armagnacs or Orleanists. So it's a civil war that he exploits there. But nonetheless, the European dimension is important. Henry cast around to try to get troops from many different parts of uh, Europe. And in our soldier database, uh, we found their soldiers from uh, Bohemia, uh, you know, from all over play uh, Europe, from Italy. Uh, you can imagine some interesting things about these people serving in the garrison in Calais. Uh, uh, so I think we can see quite a lot of Spanish serving in Normandy. The French relied on uh, the Spanish troops quite a lot as well. And in terms of gunnery, it was the Spanish and the Germans who were selling their services. So this, this idea of you could call them mercenaries, but you could also say these are troops supplied as a result of alliances. Not quite the same thing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. For how many people the war actually was a living? And when that ends, when the kings come to peace or truce... What the hell are these people to do, particularly if they are Englishmen and they're stuck across in France? So it's a natural reaction, I think, but one that did cause a lot of difficulties. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. 
You've just touched upon it there, but how did new weapons influence the Hundred Years' War and how did weaponry evolve in that period? Yeah, weaponry. Well, it does seem amazing, doesn't it? The English did have a very powerful weapon in the longbow, really. And it wasn't until the end of the period that the French really started to train people in the use of that. They relied more on the crossbow, which is a more accurate weapon, but it doesn't have the same mass effect. The English didn't have as many men-at-arms. You know, the, the population was smaller and they couldn't raise as many soldiers of the, the type, you know, we, we these are the sorts of nobles and gentry trained from birth in the use of weapons, from about the age of seven anyway. They're trained in, in fighting, riding, hunting, all those sorts of things. And we didn't have as many of those as uh, they did in France. But we had a population that was trained in the use of the longbow. And uh, famously, Edward III uh, in the 1360s confirmed that everybody should spend their Sunday uh, practising at the butts. So we had a mass uh, uh, infantry, if you like. Now, it's not to say everybody was going to go over to France. It wasn't like that. Everybody might assist in local defence, but some of those people would sign up through the nobility in these sort of retinues to go to France. And indeed, Edward III was still using some levies from Wales and other areas. Uh, so we had this, this powerful um, massed archery. And I think we can't quite imagine what it was like. The French didn't have anything to combat it, but essentially what it was was like uh, machine gun fire, if you see what I mean, at the beginning of a battle. So... That would be the opening salvo of the English. And the French re really never developed a counter to that until they started developing archery themselves in the 1440s. And it is what wins all of the battles because you can't ride against it. Famously at Agincourt, the French uh, cavalry tried to ride against it. It couldn't because the archers had put stakes in front of themselves and horses wouldn't approach there, so they protected themselves. The other thing that's interesting there is the French couldn't get enough volunteers to join the cavalry to attack the English archers. Why not? Some of the chronicles say it's, oh, you know, we, we're not going to fight against the hoi polloi, you know, we want to fight against proper men-at-arms and capture the king. Yeah, maybe that's it. But also they knew my expensive horse... An arrow in his flanks, that's going to be awful. I don't want that. It's too dangerous to ride horses against massed archers. And that's why my research on, you know, saying there are about 7,000 archers or more at Agincourt, that's very, very difficult to, uh, uh, to fight against. And so it's only really when the French start playing, at us, playing us at our own game that you see a reversal in this. So as um, the Alga Boy asks on Instagram, uh, were, were many of the famous English uh, longbowmen actually Welsh? 
No, no. I mean, the longbow was used across the whole of England and Wales and the Scots had similar uh, uh, rules on practising on Sundays as well, incidentally. Edward III did recruit groups of archers in Wales, uh, but then it starts to fall off, really, from the 1340s onwards. In 1415, most of the archers were recruited through these these mixed retinues. Uh, uh, say the Duke of Gloucester would have two hundred men at arms and six hundred archers. That's how these companies were made up. Usually, a ratio of one to three by that time, realizing how valuable archers were. But also, Henry did recruit um, five hundred archers from Lancashire, five hundred archers from Cheshire and 500 archers from South Wales, not North Wales, because, of course, Glendower had been in rebellion recently. So there were those uh, archers, 1,500 special archer companies. So there's still a realisation that the Welsh are useful in this, but so are uh, the people from Lancashire and and Cheshire. I think that's often forgotten, uh, really, and I'm afraid it is one of the myths of the, uh, the Hundred Years' War. Now, what about guns? Well, we think there were some even at the Battle of Cressy, but guns really start coming into their own in the early 15th century. And what we're getting them there for is for siege warfare. These are great cannons, huge bombards with very, very wide muzzles, and these are used to try to demolish the fortifications of a town. And they do that at Harfleur. In fact, uh, Harfleur is probably the first time we really see the effectiveness of gunpowder. By the way, there are some guns inside Harfleur that fire over the walls towards the English army, and that's pretty horrible as well. And as time goes on, the the siege weapons, the gun as a siege weapon, takes over from all those strange contraptions that were used for throwing stones and, and things in the past. I mean, basically replaces the trebuchet and all of those kinds of things. And one interesting thing here is that it is, it's a bit like the atomic bomb of the 15th century, that just the threat of it could be enough to make the other side surrender. And that happens at Mont in 1449, where Charles VII draws his guns up outside the town and there's negotiations and the townspeople who've just spent a lot of good money on building those walls up, <laughs> yeah, uh, say, uh, you know, I think we'd rather surrender than have our, our walls blitzed. So they are very interesting. It's the threat as much as a practice. Now, how did the French uh, view the Hundred Years' War? That's a question from Andrew Kavros on Instagram. Well, we all study the bits of the war we like, so there's a hell of a lot of writings about Joan of Arc, as you can imagine. There's also a lot of writings about Charles V. He's the king that reversed the trend in the uh, 1370s and 80s. So I think one thing you could say is that they choose to study the bits where they were winning and they choose to study the end uh, of the war and the recovery of authority under Charles VII, you know, the God-given uh, king and that. Uh, I mean, of course, I 
tend to speak to academics, and academics are broad-minded, and therefore, you know, they're searching the truth, and they're very interested in the arguments that I've put forward, and they will look, as I know some of them have done, at the chaos France was in, in 1415 to, to 20. So they're approaching it in a very different way. But I think for the French public as a whole, the Hundred Years' War means Joan of Arc. I really do. I think it, it boils down to that. And although it's something that they study, they study it because they won at the end of it. Yep. So I think it's a curiosity, but that generates a national heroine, if you like, and eventual French victory. So is she kind of the French equivalent of Henry V or is she more elevated in France than Henry V would be in England? Oh, I think she's more elevated yeah. because, uh, for instance, I don't think Henry V was used much as an icon in the First and Second World War, whereas Joan of Arc certainly was used uh, by the French. There are even war memorials for the First World War with Joan of Arc on them. And uh, she was certainly a heroine of the Vichy regime. There's a very famous poster of her tied to the stake in Rouen uh, and the Rouen buildings, modern buildings, they're being destroyed and on fire. And the French, uh, the Vichy regime, had that uh, the enemy always returned to the scene of their crimes, uh, as a reference to the fact that it was the English had burnt Joan in uh, Rouen in th 1431. And here they were coming back and bombing Rouen. How could they be the true true friends if if you like there? So an interesting use uh, of of history uh, uh, there. I think Joan was used also in adverts for for war bonds. I think even in America, for instance. So you know the uses of Joan as a patriotic woman in uh, wartime. You see quite a lot of that in in France. So I think she does epitomise very much uh, the 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 national salvation, the national rescue and the pride that the French have in themselves, perhaps also the religious dimension, although France is uh, officially a secular country, it became that really for them the revolution uh, onwards. I think, uh, and indeed, there was quite a lot of controversy over the canonization of Joan. It often comes as a surprise to people that she wasn't made a saint until 1920. Yeah. But I think that is because of this tension between secularization and religion there. But the pressure eventually, and with the First World War and France being redeemed uh, eventually in, in that, I think made her, fortified her position very much as, as the national heroine who just also happened to be a very holy person. Sure. And I've got two more questions. Um, now, we've had one uh, question submitted on Facebook which wants to know more about the role of the routier. I wonder if you could, could explain who the routier were and what they did and why they are so infamous. Yeah, le routier. It's a lovely term, isn't it? Because I think it's uh, it's a reference to modern restaurant critics, isn't it? And all of that. That's not what it meant in the Middle Ages. Yeah, uh, these essentially are ex-soldiers who are not employed. They're unemployed soldiers, and uh, they uh, obviously, when they've lost their job, they join together and they live in the countryside and they cause, they harass the local population, and so they continue a war, if you like, but. A, their own kind of, of war, I know what, what you'd call them, because I don't think they're doing it out of patriotic reasons. They're, they're uh, just renegades, if you like. They pop up, really, in 
in post-war situations. So there's quite a lot of them in the 1360s because there'd been a lot of soldiers for whom a peace treaty was the worst possible news. And so they, they continue this kind of war. And you get it a lot down in Gascony, where there's a lot of small fortresses and that kind of thing. And they have to, they come to um, sort of protection rackets, really, with the local populations. There's a lot of activity in the 1360s and uh, onwards. Uh, there's some of it as well in Normandy from the 1430s, because the English had had to shore up their hold of Normandy by pouring in thousands of troops in 1436. And then they discover they don't need them, they're not recovering the territory, they've got many, they can't afford to pay them all, and so we get the same kind of problem. In that period, they're called the gens vivant sous le pays, the men living off the land, and from time to time the English try to round them up, uh, and they have uh, rules like, you know, they'll check uh, local people. If the local people are found amongst them, they're sent back home. If there are craftsmen found amongst them, then they're sent back to do their jobs. If there are English and Welsh amongst them, then we're going to uh, repatriate them. They even march them to Barfleur and then put them on a ship and bring them back to England. So it was a big problem. Then they had another wheeze, and that was after the truce of 1444. I tell you what, let's join with French ex-soldiers and invade Switzerland. So uh, you get them used in, in different kinds of ways. But the important thing probably from the history of uh, military organisation is it just shows how many professional soldiers there were, for how many people the war actually was a living. And when that ends, when the kings come to peace or truce, what the hell are these people to do, particularly if they are Englishmen and they're stuck across in France? So it's a natural reaction, I think, but one that did cause a lot of difficulties. And did the French population feel a lot of bitterness towards them? They did, they did. And in the 14th century, uh, it does link to the popular rebellion, the Jacquerie, where they are worried about the actions of ex-soldiers, particularly as the French soldiers being such a, a useless shower at the Battle of Poitiers. So there's a lot of hostility to soldiers. And there's certainly a lot of hostility in Normandy. Uh, I mean, the English posed as right rulers of Normandy, fair rulers, keeping law and order. And this was the last kind of thing they wanted. And even worse, uh, you know, there were a lot of prostitutes with these these informal groups of soldiers. There were lots of pages, lots of young men uh, with them as well. And so they they really, you know, they tried to round them up. They tried to break up these informal groups in order to uh, get peace with the local population, um, really, because the local population said, we're not going to pay the taxes unless you clear all these vagabonds uh, kind of... I mean, it has a, a modern ring to it, doesn't it? All these these rioters in the streets, so to speak. You know, where's the government? What, how is it protecting the population? Soldiers are supposed to protect the population, yet it's turned against the population when you have unemployed soldiery in, uh, in this kind of way. OK, and this is my final question. This has been submitted by Herstory Nerd on Instagram. And the question is, how did the Hundred Years' War change the political landscape in Europe? I guess, what was his main legacy and how did it mm. impact mm. on the balance of power across Europe? I mean, I think we can see this in different phases as well. I honestly think that the first phase, that English success phase, really enhanced the position of England 
in Europe. Maybe it hadn't that prominent a position and it really, you know, the fact that it defeated the French and got a lot of territory from the French really boosted the English. But then you get a period of failure which means that England's star is no longer in the ascendant. It then comes up again with Henry V, who is very famous throughout the whole of uh, Europe, although not everybody likes him. For instance, the Pope, Martin V, refuses to acknowledge the Treaty of Troyes, so the papacy never recognised English kings as, as kings of France. But the most important point, and I'm sure that's what this uh, uh, commentator was asking about, is what about at the end? Well, I think it shows that uh, at the end of the war, the English were in a very, very bad place. They had a king who'd never been interested in the war. They had a lot of faction fighting amongst the captains who'd returned in failure. And it is thought that uh, it was the news of the Battle of Castillon in the summer of 1453 that triggered the final madness of Henry VI. Some thought that the news came and he fell on the floor in a catatonic fit and was never the same again. So it really undermined the whole of political society. And I think it's not a coincidence that that's 1453. Within two years, 1455, we have the first battle of the Wars of the Roses. So the English just fall on themselves. If they can't fall on the French, they just fall on themselves. And that period through to the 1480s really is a period of of great division, great trouble within England. There are periods of recovery under Edward IV, but even so, it's, it's where the English get a bad reputation. And we can see this in treatments of Richard III, for instance. I know there's a division of opinion in England, but if you look at contemporary sources in Europe, they all thought he killed the princes in the tower. They all thought, you know, the, what's England doing? It's sort of just destroying itself. And therefore the Tudors, you know, with the restoration of law and order, because they don't know that's going to happen, but it does, and uh, over the years. And so what we see under Henry VII is a really important rebuilding by not going to war very much, to be honest. Henry VIII is much more of a warmonger uh, there. But I think by then, what we're seeing is Henry VIII trying to imitate, emulate the other rulers of Europe. We're starting to get the great Habsburg rise and the French uh, monarchy then. And so Henry VIII is imitating that. We've got a new foreign policy. It's not the Hundred Years' War revived under Henry VIII. It's a very different kind of uh, situation, even though it manifests itself with attacks in, on France. It's, it's a sort of short, sharp shocks. It's a very different kind of thing and a much greater interest perhaps in domestic politics there, you could argue, uh, uh, as well. So I think uh, the end of our interest in France... Um, and there isn't a direct link with the creation of empire. That's of a lot later. I personally don't think what was happening in uh, uh, late medieval France was the early English empire or British empire. Uh, I don't think that's a valid way of, uh, of, of looking at it. But maybe a final point to make here, um, the holding of territories overseas, as with the uh, end of empire, the beginning of Commonwealth, is, is always a tricky situation. And we know that a large number of Gascons in 1453 actually left, you know, fled from French-held 
Gascony and came to England. And one of them became quite an important minister uh, of state. And it wasn't until he died in 1468 that the English stopped making a Gascon role. They'd started these in the 13th century as a sort of record of their administration in in, uh, Gascony. Uh, And even when they lost Gascony in 1453, they kept this role, daft, really, no business for it. And it wasn't until he died, that last link, if you like, with the old uh, duchy that we'd held way back into the middle of the 12th century. So I think, you know, maybe there was a reluctance on some people's part to give up this idea of the lands of the English kings in France. And that's been brilliant. Thanks so much for your time there. I really enjoyed that. That was so, so informative. Cheers. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Anne Curry. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of the topics or historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Stephen Taylor about life in the Georgian Navy. Mm-hmm.